Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us on this uh, Easter and Resurrection Sunday, especially if you are new or visiting, or maybe it's just simply been a while uh, since you've come to church. We do want to extend a special welcome to you, and please uh, come and find me or any one of the other elders after service is over. We would love to connect with you. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 874. If you are using a church Bible, page 874, Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. And this passage is, is best known as a parable of the prodigal son. And, and this is not a normal uh, Easter passage that explicitly speaks of Jesus's resurrection from the grave, but there is a resurrection within this text, one that represents what would be utterly impossible without Jesus's own. And so Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, and would you please join me in prayer before we look at this passage together. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship and for gathering us here together. And now into the hearing of your word, we ask that you would uh, make it effective in our hearts, that we might witness your power and the salvation of people. Please give to us the grace we need to understand your heart for us and to come in f to you and, and to find that which is truly life. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is one of the most well-known, uh, familiar, uh, famous stories uh, that has ever been told. And there's perhaps an obvious reason to that for so many of us can relate to the prodigal within its narrative, as if this were our own story, as being wandering and lost and desperately needing to return to the Father. This is a passage which has no commands in it, a text without imperatives to us at all, and this is not a set of verses that tells us to be more like Jesus with all of our might. No, this is a parable that displays the love that God has towards the sinful and even the most wicked kind of sinful. And really, uh, it's given to the original audience as a response to some who are complaining about Jesus, that he spends a little bit too much time and stands a little bit too close to those people who most would deem as hopeless and helpless and the most far gone. This parable is given in response to those religious people who have a bone to pick with Jesus because of how he chooses the company that he keeps, because Jesus hangs out with the notorious sinners. And they don't like it at all. That is the context to which Jesus gives to us this narrative in defense of himself as to why he spends so much time with the ones most religious people would avoid. And I think this is a passage where we are just supposed to stand in a kind of great wonder at the heart that God has for the lost and to contemplate the very one who gives to us this parable, who will also soon give his own perfect life unto death upon a cross and rise from the grave on that third day so that he might atone for sin and bring the very lost ones to himself. We are to wonder at this love and come to him in confidence, no matter how many skeletons we may have in our closet. Uh, we read first in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The man in our parable has two sons, and both are far from him in vastly different ways. Uh, We're looking at just the younger son today. And in this picture of this younger son, we find a particular portrait of humanity, the kind that wants to follow his or her own heart and live life apart, separate, and independently from the God who provides everything for us, who thinks that this independence and this freedom from God is what will make life, life. No restraints, no suffocating morality, no authority to tell me what I should and shouldn't do only to find that this life separate from God isn't what it is cracked up to be. Now, this younger son, uh, the audacity of what he is requesting of his father is pretty outrageous, and the listening crowd at that time would cringe when hearing it. Normally, a good Jewish boy would stay with his father and serve the family business. But what he is asking for is an inheritance that would only be given after his father had died. And so what he is saying is, I don't want to wait for you to die, Dad. Give to me what your death would give to me now. What is rightfully mine? It would be better for my life if you were gone. I want your money. I just don't want you. And so this son would rather have his father's estate than have his father. And in his heart, in many ways, his father was already dead to him. This is a a great and heartbreaking insult. And turning that estate into cash quickly would come at at great discount, but this son just wants to get out of there as quickly as possible. And and this younger son is emblematic of many today who want to be their own authority, uh, their own master, so to speak, their own God of sorts, that I don't want anyone to tell me what I can and cannot do and what I can and cannot be, because that sounds like slavery. I want to be utterly independent rather than to be dependent on anyone else and especially any kind of higher authority than myself or any kind of God to answer to. And and ironically, it is with this younger son in our passage that he really isn't all that dependent, independent even when he tries to live like it because his entire prodigal journey is still being funded by his father's resources. No matter how much he tries to pretend that what is his is his, It's all been given to him. And in much the same way, the Bible tells us just how dependent we are upon God as well, whether we are willing to recognize it or whether we are not. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Hebrews 1, 3, he upholds the universe. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have is a gift from God, everything. I mean, the reason why our lungs still breathe air and our hearts continue to beat and why the world turns on its axis as it circles the sun perfectly in season is because God is sustaining all of creation. And in him we live and move and have our being. And yet it is, ironically so, that we can act so independently of him even when we are so dependent on him. But often it is that we just want to be free of him. I mean, this is a natural bent of the human art. Listen to J.C. Ryle. We are all naturally proud and self-willed. We have no pleasure in fellowship with God. 
we long to depart and go afar away from him. Like sheep, we all naturally go astray and turn everyone to his own way. In this younger son's mindset, we see the natural heart of every person captivated by the bright lights and the attractive entertainments of a life away from God. And so this younger son, wanting this life of freedom, only achieves said freedom by permission and consent and funding from his father. And this father could have disowned him right there and maybe should have cut him off. And our God could have disowned us right there and maybe he should have cut us off. But he gives to him the freedom his heart so longs for since closeness to the father feels like slavery to him. And it is as if every step he takes away from his father, he feels that freedom more and more, that I can finally live like how I want to live and spend like how I want to spend and do what I want to do and satisfy any craving that I want. This is the picture of the wandering sinner receiving the blessings of God and living like God is dead to him in a life of further distance and departure from the Father. And this is the Father often letting us go in our own ways. But, but this freedom, it only lasts for a period of time. And this son soon finds out that the life he has dreamed of is actually a pretty bitterly hard. A famine arises at that very moment where this prodigal, which means wastefully extravagant, has these connotations of being unrestrained and irresponsible. A famine arises right at that moment where this prodigal has spent everything. And then he finds himself left in want. This life away from the father, it hadn't been what it had been cracked up to be. This son has never been hungrier. He's never been poorer. He's never been more enslaved than when he finds himself hired out to someone who doesn't give a rip about him. And this is Jesus' way of visualizing a life disconnected from God. That if we're not with the Father, then we will be enslaved to something else. Listen to John Piper. When we break our attachment with God, you will end up attached to another. And that attachment will be slavery, not sonship. It may be drugs or alcohol or illicit sex or an employer, or a spouse, or a sport, or a hobby, or a television, or a lake cabin, or a computer, or books, go on and on, career, whatever. The attachment may be crude, or it may be refined, but if we break loose from God, we will be attached to another. We all serve something. We all bought something, and this prodigal son finds himself attached to another, not something refined, but something entirely crude. And it's so bad that he actually here envies pigs who are his job to keep well-fed even when he isn't fed himself. His life has somehow descended lower than their lives. And it's so bad that as he watches them slurp up that mush, he wishes that he could be like them. For at least then, my appetite might be satisfied. And brothers and sisters, this pictures that life apart from God as one really of this perpetual dissatisfaction. Never enough. Running away, it, it always feels good at first. It always feels free for a moment or, or two or three. But in the end, we, we frankly have bought the lie. In the end, when we look back, we will really find ourselves left wanting. And sometimes it is that at that place we find our, our closest relationships, they're in shambles. Our moods are swinging all over the place. The pleasures of sinful freedom, they really don't last all that long. And it leaves a path of destruction in its wake. 
Sometimes if we were just to look up and contemplate, we would see that our lives are not all like we think they are, but we often will not look up until we hit some kind of bottom where all you can do is look up. And to the original audience, this here is the bottom, not just a life left in want, but this is a life of extreme degradation. For to the Jewish people, the most dehumanizing uh, image may be possible is a son of Israel covered in pig filth, the most unclean kind of animal that we refuse to even eat the meat of. And yet this young man wants to eat like them, is jealous of them while he's covered in their refuse, alone and filthy. And it's not like this son is a sheep who wandered off innocently or a coin that had been lost like in the two parables prior. No, this son dug his own pit and is more hungry and left more empty than ever. And this is what will inevitably happen when we turn away from the Father. Alexander McLaren writes, there is always famine in the land of forgetfulness of God. When we forget God, we're always going to be hungry, and we're never going to be ultimately satisfied because being free from God is not really freedom at all. And so in this image of the second son, we find a particular portrait of humanity, the kind which wants to follow his or her own heart, independent from God who provides everything for us, captivated by how attractive life seems to be free from him, only to find that that life apart from him is not what it is cracked up to be because life apart from God becomes a slow and miserable death of which we don't even know. We are dying until we hit that bottom and all the religious people who have criticized Jesus for spending time with all the wrong kinds of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, at this point, they're nodding their heads in approval. At this point, they're thinking, this is what you get when you disrespect your father and dishonor God. This is what happens when you live like this, all ungodly and the like. And the story for them could have ended right here. And they would have been happy. You made your bed, now lie in it. This is a moral cautionary tale of exactly what happens when you do bad things. But the parable doesn't end there. It continues. We read in verse 17, and we see a change in the sun. We see a turning. We see the beginnings of what is called repentance. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here we find the beginnings of true repentance. And, and the son, the text says, he came to himself. He's coming to his senses. He's seeing his own misery. There's this awakening, this realization that even the lowest of people, even hired servants who are with my father, even they are satisfied. And even the highest people, sons like me, when we are away from the father, we perish in want. I want my father. And this happens in the life of every true believer. We've tasted a little bit of the world, sweet at first and, and bitter and, and hollow in the end. And all it does is bring us thoughts of home. And we come to, we, we recognize that everything I've ever wanted, everything I've ever needed was in my father's house. And that real freedom is found in closeness to God, not in a life of independence from God. And then we realize more just how much we've squandered everything. That playing around in the far country only leads us to perish in hunger, with our appetites never truly and lastingly satisfied because we are made for God. 
We're created by him to be filled with them, that our longing hearts are designed to find satisfaction in him. But, but it's not just coming to himself as if this epiphany is enough, as if tears and conviction are enough. No, the son actually has to act. He actually has to arise and go back to his father. He has to act. Feelings, tears, guilt, remorse, resolutions, they are all nothing until they are completed in real concrete action. We can't just think thoughts. We actually have to get up from the muck and make that journey home to walk back in that same direction we fled from. And notice, he still calls him father. And this is identity right here. Even when the last time the word father had been on his lips was when he demanded his inheritance if his father, as if his father were already dead to him. How different that word father sounds in his mind now. For this is potentially the very first time he realizes how much his father is to him. And because of that, he begins to understand his own sin and wandering. And because of that, he begins to hate his own sin. I put this distance between us. I did that to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's another way of saying I've sinned against God. And I have sinned in your sight because his sin is first against God and then it is against his father because our sin is always first against God before it is against other people. And, and there's no entitlement here, just realistic, accurate, abject humility. And as he rehearses his speech, He's saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I mean, there's not an ounce of pride within this request. He knows he deserves nothing, and so he demands nothing. Being a servant is good enough for me, maybe even too good for me. And he's throwing himself upon the hopes that his father might be merciful. This is a portrait of the beginnings of a true repentance. There's a coming to yourself. A coming to your senses. That bitter taste of sin and its consequences is still in your mouth, first against God and then against others. There's a relationship broken here, and that's messing everything up here relationally. And there's no excuses offered. No, you see, there was this famine, and that's the reason why I've come back. I mean, if I invested my money this way instead of that, I mean, I would be doing fine without you. Who can really predict these things? There's none of that. There's no blame shifting. There's no, you know, when I think about it, you really enabled me to live my life this way. If anything, I think we're mutually responsible for my situation. Or, you know, my brother this, and my father that, and my trauma this, and my suffering that. No, there are no excuses, no claims, no merits, just genuine remorse and a deep sense of unworthiness, humble confession. I own everything, and I want to turn away from it all with a hope that God would be merciful to give me even the lowest of places. And what this repentance is, is ultimately about viewing the Father in a more accurate light. Listen to John Piper again. Repentance is believing that God is so great and so good that the smallest enjoyments of his house are better than 10,000 worlds without him. Just to be back with you for when we genuinely begin to believe that even the lowest position in the Father's house is better than 10,000 worlds without him. We begin to come back to the heart of repentance. I wonder if you believe that, not just because it sounds holy, but because it's actually true. 
that God really is worth more than 10,000 worlds without him. That even the highest station, even the greatest boast, it's all just a pigsty in my mind and my heart. Psalm 84, that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. One preacher says, repentance is beautiful because it finds God beautiful just as this young son now sees his father as wonderful. Verse 20, we continue and, and we witness here the son's reception. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. It is here that we finally get the father's point of view. For up to now, uh, in this narrative, it has only been told from the son's perspective, the son's actions, the son's thoughts, the son's rebellion, the son's repentance. Here we find the father's heart for his lost child, and it begins with his eyes. He's seen his son returning. His father sees him while he is still a long way off because this father has always been looking for him on that horizon, searching it endlessly longing to see the outline of his child returning, and his eyes are on it even at that very moment his son appears. And he doesn't wait. He can't wait for his son to reach him. He must get to him faster, and so he races to him. And this is a sight to behold, because in this culture, it wasn't dignified for an older patriarch like this man to run. I mean, he commands servants. He is the head of an estate. Other people run for him to fetch him what he so desires. But in this moment, he throws all that dignity out that window. And he lifts up his flowing robe. He exposes his leg. And he sprints as if nothing else matters in this moment. Charles Spurgeon, he says, slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we scarcely limp. And if we are limping towards him, he will run towards us. It is that God is not reluctant to do this. He longs to do this. Uh, the ESV that you have in the church says that the father ran and embraced him. Uh, translations like the NIV says that his father threw his arms around him. The most literal translation is that this father fell upon his son's neck. It's, it's a very graphic terminology. And I remember uh, years ago when my grandma had passed away, and she and my grandpa raised me as if they were my parents after my parents split up and I went to live with them. I mean, so meaningful were they to me that their lives are so much of the reason why I wanted to come back to Hawaii. But she was a mother to me. And, and even now to this day, I can still hear her voice from time to time and, and even have dreams about her. And I remember standing with Laura in my apartment at the time and getting a call from my mom. And uh, through tears, she said, Grandma died, you better come home. And I got off that phone, and, and I just started crying. And I, I, I hugged Laura, and, and, and I was a mess. And she told me later that she actually was supporting all my weight. 
because I just fell on her. The emotion was so heavy. It was, it was so strong. I literally fell on her neck because I was so moved. This father here, and I'm sure you have stories like the same, this father, he falls on his son's neck because the emotion is too strong for him to even bear up his own weight any longer. He's so filled with it, so filled with love, that all he can do is hang off of his son and just kiss him over and over and over again. This is a picture that Jesus chooses to give to us. I mean, I don't have to describe it in this way, but he does this on purpose because he wants us to feel something. He wants us to have this better understanding of his heart for the sinful of the Father's heart when one sinner comes to him. And it doesn't take a 1,000 or even a 100 because their cumulative value might move God a little bit. No, it just takes one of us that from God's heavenly throne of glory, he will run to hang off the neck of even one repentant sinner to embrace him or her and kiss him or her again and again and again. And this kind of condescension of the king of glory almost sounds blasphemous. Are you allowed to say these things about God? But Jesus carefully paints it exactly in this way to emphasize how ready and how willing the heavenly Father is to receive sinners who come to their senses and want to turn back towards him. And if it could happen to a sinner like this son, who is the worst of them, the most disrespectful kind, the most wasteful, the most wicked, the most high-handed of an offender, the most immoral, then there is no one beyond his love. And there is absolutely no one beyond the reach of his forgiveness. And it is that as this prodigal begins to make his rehearsed confession while his father is hanging off his neck, I mean, if there's anything that makes this young man realize so clearly now how sinful his sin really is, it's because of how strongly his father shows his love for him, even after he knows he has been forgiven. And that's the case with any of us. Forgiven people who have felt the love of God should hate their sin more utterly and confess it even more frequently but, but this son here, he can't even finish his rehearsed script. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't even get to the servant part. It's already crystal clear that his father has already accepted him back. And then the father, the actions are all his again. He begins to command his servants, bring the best robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf. Henry Burton, in this peal of imperatives, we detect the rapid beating of the father's heart. Robe, ring, shoes, calf, the loving, eager haste to wipe out all the sad marks that sin has left. And this is not some kind of gradual reception or a partial one. I'll give you a cold shoulder until I'm convinced you really feel guilty. You feel really bad. So keep groveling until I warm up a bit. No, this is instant, and it is full. This best robe is likely the father's robe. That's the best one. And he covers this son's reeking, tattered, pig filth body. I mean, I don't even let my kids sit on the couch when they're too sweaty. Y'all sit on the floor because your heads are too wet. He says, put the best robe on his pig filth. Shoes under his bare, impoverished feet. The ring signifies wealth, position, honor, all of these symbols of restoration, reinstatement, that all that you have lost, all that you have fled from, they are yours again, and even more than what you had to begin with. The fattened calf, which is fed constantly and continually to keep it plump, 
to be used for a special occasion, usually for like a wedding feast to feed the hundreds, once in a lifetime kind of event. I mean, nowadays we eat meat like almost every day. But not in this culture. Meat is only for those very special occasions. The father says, kill it now. This is the feast that I've been waiting my whole life for. Invite everybody over. We have to have a party. And then they began to all celebrate. Why is that? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Repentance is beautiful. Celebration is beautiful because it is a bringing back to life those which sin has killed. In this parable, we see the sinful, rebellious life of the prodigal son in all of its detail, right next to the lavish, merciful love of the Father in all of that detail. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not downplay sin at all. You know, sometimes it is that we can have this tendency to think that to be really loving is to be really not talking about this stuff all that much. But Jesus does not attempt to minimize anything about the seriousness of the prodigal's actions at all. And if any preacher says to you that your life apart from God isn't really all that bad, well, then he or she is lying and don't trust him or her. This is really bad, but it's right next to that, which is really good. Now, can God the Father actually do this? I mean, we go spend our time with the harlots and doing whatever we want, and then he just comes running and embracing and kissing and welcoming us as if sin never happened, as if our life apart from him, our rebellion against him on his dime, as if it never happened at all. Can he do that? Can he just sweep all of that and put it right under the rug? No, he can't. And this is where the cross and the resurrection and the gospel is key. The cross is not just some emblem of love, that Jesus loves you so much that he dies for you. He dies for you because he loves you. That's half true. He loves you so much that he dies for you. But he has to die for you because someone has to pay the death, the wages of sin. Someone has to pay the righteous wrath of God against sin. God can't sweep things under the rug. He's too holy. He's too righteous. He's too sinless. He's too perfect. He has to handle it. And how do we know that his offering on our behalf upon the cross is accepted? Because three days later, that tomb is empty. If Jesus remained dead, there's no forgiveness for our sins, but the tomb is empty. How do we know that the penalty and the power of sin is broken? The resurrection, the empty tomb. How do we know that death is no longer needed to be feared by us? The resurrection, the empty tomb. The resurrection is Christ's validation that all he has come to do has actually been accomplished for it is that the only way the only way that any of us can be raised from this death to that life, like we see in this parable, is if he has been raised from death to life. And the only way we can be lifted from the dead is if Jesus Christ has been lifted from the dead, proof that our sins have been dealt with. And Jesus, even as he's giving this parable, which shows to us the heart of our God for the lost, the wandering, the sinful, the prodigal, he is currently headed to that very cross to achieve it. And for those of us here, we need to know this, 
For those of us here who aren't here all that often, you need to know this, that God's eyes are still full of mercy and are upon you today on that horizon. His heart is still full of compassion. His feet are ever ready to run to you. His arms are waiting to embrace you. And his lips are desiring to kiss you over and over again and again. He wants to clothe you and reinstate you and celebrate you coming from death and into life. And he has done everything, the cross, the resurrection. And even now in this parable, the most famous one Jesus has perhaps ever told, the only question is, will you actually come to him? Will you actually turn? Will you actually own it? Would you actually see your present dissatisfaction? Would you actually come back to what you were created to be, a child of God and enjoying him forevermore? This is God's heart for you to elicit your heart to return to him. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in the cross, in the resurrection, your victory. And I pray that you, by your kindness, would lead us to repentance. I pray that you lift the blinders, help us come to our senses. I pray that you wipe away all the junk out of our eyes that, that causes us to look to this and that rather than to you. And I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit and by your mercy and grace, we might actually behold you for who you are in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that the love our hearts so desire that we by faith might be convinced can only be found in you. Would you please gather worshipers to yourself? We long for this. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.